Today's scripture reading is from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. So for those of you here that were here last week, you, you might have noticed that, we, that, that Pastor Kyle preached on James 3, 1 through 12, but here we are back in James 2, 14 through 26. And maybe some of you last week when Kyle got up to preach James chapter 3, you thought, well, what are they doing skipping over this passage? Trying to play a little fast and loose with God's word, skipping the hard passage. Well, what happened was, is several weeks ago, we had Doug Logan come, and that was the week I was supposed to preach this, but with him coming, we kind of got out of order, and so next week, Pastor Paul will restore order, and we'll get back on track, and so please open your Bibles to James chapter 2, verse 14, if you have not. How many of you have seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Good for you. Classic movie. Classic movie. And if you're familiar with the movie, if you're unfamiliar with the movie, uh, in this one, Indiana Jones is going after the Holy Grail. So the cup that Christ used at the Last Supper, he, he is, and there's Nazis on his tail once again, but, but the, the journey is going after the Holy Grail. And towards the end of the movie, when they're closing in on where the Grail is hidden, he has to pass through three tests. And the second of those tests is what is called the leap of faith. And so after he gets through the first test, he comes to this ledge and there's this deep cavern with no apparent bridge. And so he looks in the book that has kind of all the clues and the ways to get through these different tests and he just sees a guy with his foot in the air kind of walking towards the cavern. And so because Indiana Jones is the hero, you know what's going to happen, but he's got that moment where he lifts his foot, falls forward, and lands on the bridge. And it's sort of, there's this optical illusion where there's actually a bridge there, but you can't quite see it. And so then he, he found it by taking that leap of faith. What if I told you this morning that there is a bridge right here that extends all the way back to that back wall, back by our live stream camera? I, I'm serious. There is, a, there is a bridge right here. Do you guys believe me? Like, Paul, you got to believe me, right? I mean, we're bros. We're, we're pastors together. Come on. You got to believe me, right? Kyle, come on. No. Okay, I got one elder on my side. One elder on my side. But, I mean, 
I have faith. I wouldn't lie to you guys, right? I, I would never lead you astray. There, there is a bridge right here. I have faith. I'm going to show you. Okay, not so much. <laughs> so, I could say that I have faith that there is a bridge here. I could cry, I could plead, I could scream, I could say, I believe there is a bridge here. I have faith. I could do everything in my power to tell you that there is a bridge here. But was my faith real? No. Why? Because I didn't actually step right here into this cavern, this empty space, to show you by my works whether or not my faith was real. Empty faith. What use was it to declare there's a bridge here, I believe it, but not take a step and actually put works to that faith? That's the question that James presents, with us, presents to us this morning. The nature of true faith. As he asks in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? It is merely claiming faith good enough, James asks. If I say I have faith in God, I have faith in Christ, is that good enough? Or must works be part of the equation? Must our faith be accompanied by works if it is going to save us? Now, on the one hand, on the one hand, the, the, the answer to this question should seem relatively obvious. Like, of course, there should be works to accompany faith. If you say you believe something, but you don't back that up, then of course your words are just empty. However, don't we also believe that our salvation is by grace through faith alone, nothing of our works? Don't we believe that we can't earn our salvation, we, we can't work to earn God's approval, that it is, it is through faith alone? Is James adding works to the equation? Is he saying faith in Jesus plus works is what saves us? Well, in some ways, it, it seems that James is contradicting other parts of the New Testament, but as we're going to see, that is not the case. James is not adding works to our salvation, but he is saying faith works. James is not adding works as a condition for our salvation, but he is saying that when we, are, when we exercise true faith, works will be the result. True saving faith produces good works. It shows itself through good works. It's more than just mere verbal affirmation or good feels and sentiment. And this is so important. This is such an important point because too often we can settle for affirmation and sentiment. Where we can think, yeah, sure, I like Jesus. Jesus is great. I believe in him. But there's no actual submission to his teaching. There's no obedience. There's no love. There's no worship. There's nothing that follows those words that indicates that there's true faith. And we have to be clear on the nature of faith if we are going to exercise true faith. And so here's the title of my message this morning. More than words. And the main point from this passage for us is this. True faith transforms. True faith is more than words because true faith transforms. So after asking the question, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but does not have works, James then presents us with a test case. He writes this in verses 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, Stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? 
In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Let's say somebody, for those of you that are part of First City Church, let's say somebody in your gospel community has been persistently and genuinely in need of food and clothes. I mean, they, they have had fallen on hard times, difficulty, and so there is a, a real lack daily of whether or not they're going to get food. And, and, and the clothes on their back are falling apart, and it's becoming winter, and, and the, the prospect of being cold is very real. And you see them week after week after week in your gospel community, and you see their need, and your heart even goes out to them, and you go up to them, and you say, hey, be blessed, be filled, be warm. God's richest blessing on you. And you turn and walk away. James asks the question, what good are your words? What good is it to pronounce blessing on someone, to say, be blessed, be filled. I hope God blesses you and gives you what you need and not be the one to act. What good is it to have sentiment in your heart and good feels if you do not act? James is asking the question, are words enough? Are words enough? If all we have are words, then do we truly believe? Is there true faith? And James answers the question, no. Faith without works is dead. Just as blessing somebody to be warm, be fed, is empty and dead if you're not actually following up and helping, helping them Faith without works is dead. Now, we need to pay close attention to God's word here because James is making a very particular point. The situation he describes is one between brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are part of the church community, those who are part of our faith family. And so, yes, we're to show love and concern to those who are outside the church as we are able and as, as is wise, okay, we have obligations to those outside just the church. At the same time, we have a particular responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as you have a particular responsibility to your biological family, we have a particular responsibility to our spiritual family as well. True faith, James is pointing out, transforms us by producing in our heart a deep love for God's people, a deep love for God's people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, a love that shows itself by care and concern, a love that shows itself through service and sacrifice. And so what James is pointing out here is he's saying, if you do not love God's people, how can you claim to have faith and love God? If you do not love the things God loves, if you do not love the people God has set his particular love on, how can you claim faith? How could you say, be blessed and be filled, I love you, and show no love? James is honing in here on a particular application of this. He's saying if we're not willing to care for, serve, and sacrifice for God's people, then James says our faith is dead. Where does James get such an idea? From Jesus himself. In Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46 and Jesus speaks of when he will bring final judgment to the world. All the nations will be before him as he sits on his throne and he's going to separate out those who are true believers from false believers as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And this is what Jesus says or what he will, he will say at that judgment. 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The righteous, those blessed by the Father and those that belong to Christ, those who exercise faith and will inherit the kingdom, their faith shows itself. How does Jesus say? Through the good works of loving and caring for and serving the least of the brothers and sisters, the least in the family of God, exercising love towards those who belong to Christ. Claiming faith, claiming faith, but showing no tangible love and concern for the people that God loves, the people that belong to him. How can you claim faith? Like, what kind of crazy calculus is that? Yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't love the people he loves. Yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't love his bride. I'm not going to exercise care and concern for his bride. James is cutting to the quick here. Faith in Christ shows itself, true faith in Christ shows itself in love for his people. Which is why at the same time, at the same judgment, Jesus will also say this. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus so identifies with his people that to serve our brothers and sisters is to serve Christ. To care for those who are in need as is as if you are caring for Christ. Friends, true faith is more than words. True faith transforms. It transforms prideful and selfish and self-centered people into those who genuinely love their brothers and sisters, those who genuinely love those who belong to God. They put their faith in action. They care for, they serve, they sacrifice for those who are in need. And so the question James puts before us, are your words, is your faith more than words? Is your faith more than words? Is it a living faith or a dead faith? Well, he continues by addressing another bad take on faith and works. In verses 18 through 19, he writes, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So for those who want to draw a hard and fast line between faith over here and works over here, James is saying, okay, let's, let's set up that scenario. You say you have faith I say, I have works. You show me your faith without works. Go on. Show me your faith. We'll wait. And so in this imaginary scenario, James presupposes that this person will say, well, I believe God is one. 
There's my evidence of my faith. I believe God is one. This was the great confessional statement of the Old Testament. This is what the Jews confess. This is good theology. This is the same as Jesus is Lord in the New Testament or being able to affirm the Apostles' Creed in church history. So, so this person that James is having this imaginary discussion with, when James says, hey, show me your faith by your works, they re- revert to declarations of words again. Good theology, true theology. James says, you believe God is one, you believe good theology, good. And congratulations, your faith is the same as the devil's. You can assert a good theology You can assert the Apostles' Creed. You can assert the Westminster Confession. Whatever confession of faith, it is orthodox theology. And your faith be no better than demons. Because friends, listen, the devil's problem is not bad theology. Like the devil could write a killer systematic theology. He knows the Bible better than you and I. Why is he so good at deceiving? Because he knows the truth so well. Like, the devil knows fully who God is. He knows who Jesus is. The devil even knows he's going down. So he has all of this knowledge, this true head knowledge, and yet he's God's enemy. He's in rebellion against God. He does not submit to God's kingship and authority. Here's what's scary for you and I, friends. We can have the right theology and be entirely lost. Like, we can intellectually assert true, good, rich, biblical theology and still be far from Christ, not have true living faith. Because true faith is more than words. It's more than intellectual assent to propositions. True faith transforms. True faith is submission to Christ. True faith is submission to God and his kingship. It is turning from sin and self to God. And so our theology, yes, it is important that we have good theology. Absolutely. But true faith is more than just good theology. True faith is being transformed by the power of God. True faith is following in obedience and allegiance to Christ. True faith is more than words. Is your faith merely intellectual assent? Is it merely checking the box of confessional statements in true theology? Or has your heart been transformed? Do you truly submit and follow Christ? Now, after highlighting these two flawed ways of seeing faith and works, James then gives two examples of the correct way to see faith and works. And so first, he, he points to the example of Abraham. He, he plays the Abraham card, uh, so to speak. And, and this is going to carry force for his original audience because he's writing to, originally, Jewish Christians. And so Abraham is not only the father of the Jewish nation, he is the model of faith. When Jewish moms and dads were raising their kids to be people of faith, the person they pointed to as a model of faith was Abraham. And so look, if I wanted to show you how to play basketball, if I wanted to point you to the model of basketball, I'm not going to point you to Kobe or LeBron, I'm going to point you to Scottie Pippen. I'm, I'm kind of kidding. This is an inside joke between me and Thomas. I would point you to Michael Jordan. I am aware that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. Okay? I am aware of that. 
You would point to Jordan because Jordan is the model of how you should play. Not just his skill set, but his work ethic. I mean, the guy won Rookie of the Year, MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, All-Star, MVP of the Finals, six Finals, never lost in the Finals. I mean, everything you could win, he won. He's a model. Abraham is a model of faith. He's going to point to Abraham to say, you want to see the proper connection between faith and works, Look at the very founder of our nation. Look at the the man of faith. As James writes in verses 20 through 24, senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. The conclusion that James draws by looking at the example of Abraham, the man of faith, is this. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well then, how do those words land on you? Are, you, are some alarm bells going off? Some questions going through your mind? James says that in the example of Abraham, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Huh? Aren't we good Protestants? Don't don't we know salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Does this not contradict that? Is James not contradicting other parts of the Bible? Does not the Apostle Paul use the example of Abraham in the book of Romans to prove that salvation is by faith alone? This is what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3 and then in 3.28 and then 4, 1 through 5. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works... Pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. James says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul says a person is justified by faith apart from works in the law. And what's more, they point to the exact same passage to prove their points in Genesis 15, 6. So what gives? Are James and Paul beefing here as some scholars want to believe? Does scripture contradict itself? No. You can all rest easy. It does not contradict itself. But what we need to do here is we need to read James properly and understand how he and Paul are using the word justified. Because sometimes words have shades of meaning depending upon the context. So for example, if I said, I ran from the bear. The context of that would be that you knew I was running as fast as I could because I'm running from a bear. Now, if I said, I ran 10 miles. Well, you never hear me say that because I'd never run 10 miles. But let's just <laughs> pretend you heard me say, I ran 10 miles. The context of that, you would know, I'm not running full speed for 10 miles. I'm pacing myself. So the same word used, but used differently, an understanding of what the action is based on the context. And so we need to understand how both Paul and James are using the word justified. In the book of Romans, 
The Apostle Paul is arguing that salvation comes through faith in Christ apart from the law. And to prove his point, he shows Abraham, the example of Abraham. Abraham believed in God, he showed faith, and it was credited to him, he was counted as righteous. This happened before Abraham was circumcised, before God gave Israel the law. Abraham had a righteousness that had nothing to do with circumcision and the law. That's Paul's point. Faith precedes all of those things. We're made righteous, not because we're circumcised, not because we keep the law, but through faith. And the example of that is Abraham. And what, how Paul uses the word justified here is the sense of right standing before God. Not guilty. You are in the right. You are in relationship with God. Abraham was counted. He was declared righteous, not because of himself, but because of his faith. And God saw him, made him righteous and in right standing. This is a common and regular use of the word justified. We understand this. We use this term justified and this meaning all the time. It's all throughout the scriptures. But this is not the only regular way the word justified is used in scripture. It's also used in the sense of something being proven or shown to be real and right and true. A synonym for justified in this case could be vindicated. So let me give you an example of this, of this use of the word justified in Matthew 11, verses 18 through 19. Jesus uses this term in this way. Jesus speaks of how both he and John the Baptist, they faced accusations in spite of their behavior. This is what he says. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. The ESV translates that word justified. Same word in the Greek as the word James uses in James chapter 2. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying John was criticized for living a very disciplined lifestyle. He ate locusts and honey. He did not indulge in sort of the normal eating and drinking that other people did. And he was said, everyone said he had a demon. Jesus, Jesus went to parties. He drank wine. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. And they called him a glutton and a drunkard. The religious leaders pointed, looked at John's behavior, they looked at Jesus' behavior, and they wanted to point at their behavior as a way to discredit their ministry. Look at the way that they behave. Their, their, their ministry is not legit. But what Jesus says is that wisdom is vindicated by your deeds. He's, he says, in the end, our deeds are going to show actually our ministry is legit. In the end, those deeds are going to show the trueness, the realness, the rightness of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Justified, in this sense, means proven to be true, shown to be real, shown to be right. And this is the sense that James is using the term. And let me prove this to you, if you're a little skeptical. So let's, let's remember the context of these verses. So, so James is addressing true faith, and that true faith is more than words. True faith shows itself in good works. This is verse 18. He says, show me your faith through your works, or I will show you my faith through my works. And so he points to Abraham. And he specifically points to Abraham offering up Isaac on the altar. The son that God had promised to Abraham, 
the son that Abraham had waited so long to come, the one that he at times even struggled to believe that God was going to do that, but he held on to faith, held on to hope, believed that God was going to fulfill his promise. God fulfills his promise, and Isaac is born. What a celebration, what a joy. And then God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to give him back to me. That thing that you long for more than anything in the world, the thing that I promised I was going to give you and you waited so long for me to keep my promise, I want you to sacrifice that in the altar. Give that thing back to me. And Abraham, as a man of faith, does it. He takes Isaac up on a hill and he prepares to sacrifice him. And if you're familiar with the story, just as Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, God stops him and provides a substitute in Isaac's place. Abraham had such faith that it showed itself true in works. It showed itself real. As Hebrews 11:19 says that Abraham believed that God could resurrect Isaac. Like he believed and he knew, if I sacrifice Isaac, God is going to be in this. I trust him so much. He can raise Isaac from the dead, so I will give him back over to God. Abraham's faith was more than words. It showed itself true and real and right in his actions. And this is what James is pointing out. His faith was active with his works. It was showing himself. And as James says in verse 22, his faith was made complete Some translations will say his faith was perfected, meaning it was matured, it was brought to completion. Friends, true faith is not stagnant. It grows, it matures, it deepens. It starts as small as a mustard seed, but as it grows, it becomes so mature that we're willing to give up the things that we hold most for the glory of God. We're willing to lay down those things we most hope for and desire, the things that we most treasure. We will lay those things down when God says we will be obedient. We will trust him. Our faith will show itself to be true and real in actions. And in this, we see the end and the goal of faith. James says that in offering Isaac, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. So again, you need to pay attention to how James is using words. In, in scripture, fulfilled can be used to mean fulfillment of a prophecy. Prophecy was made, prophecy was fulfilled. But it can also mean to be filled up, to be brought to its fullest meaning and purpose. So Jesus says in Matthew 5:17, I have not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. So he came to fulfill the prophecy of the prophets. That that part is easy enough to see. But he also came to fill up, to, to fill up the law, to display the law's fullest meaning and purpose. Jesus perfectly kept the law, and in his keeping the law, we see the fullest expression of it. We see the fullness of the love and the goodness and the truth and the beauty of the law in the life of Jesus. He filled it up. He fulfilled it. And this is what James's point, when Abraham offered Isaac, it fulfilled, it brought to full meaning and purpose, God declaring him and making him righteous. Listen, friends, true faith is more than words because true faith is brought to its fullest meaning and purpose in good works. 
Abraham believed God, and, and through that faith, God declared him righteous. But that wasn't the stopping, and that wasn't the end point. That was the beginning points. God declared him righteous, made him righteous, brought him into a relationship with him for a purpose. And what was that purpose? Good works. To glorify God, to love others. Your faith has an end goal. It has a purpose. Good works. And so that point in Genesis 15, 6, where God declares Abraham righteous, has its completion, its fulfillment in Genesis 22, when, God, when Abraham offers the thing that is most valuable to him back to God. It was fulfilled in works. James is emphasizing that true faith transforms. True faith shows itself in works. Why? Because that's God's design. That's the point and purpose of faith. God didn't just save you to say, cool, you're righteous now. Go on with life. No, he saved you for a purpose, a good and glorious and grand purpose. And so friends, listen, Abraham was justified. He was made righteous. He was brought into relationship with God through faith, full stop. But he was justified in the other sense. His faith was shown to be real, right, and true through good works. And this makes absolute sense. Like, listen, friends, if God's purpose in faith, if the end of your faith, if the goal of your faith is good works and to be made like Jesus, not in some hypothetical sense, but in a real sense, then it makes absolute sense that true faith will show itself in works. True faith is more than words, friends. True faith transforms. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. And listen, the Apostle Paul does not disagree he writes in Romans 1.5 that he was given the ministry to bring about the obedience of faith. And then he writes in Galatians 5.6 that the only thing that matters is faith working itself out through love. Even the Apostle Paul, who said faith comes apart from the law, saw the connection between faith and works. James, Paul, the entirety of the scriptures, Old Testament and New, declare faith is more than words. True faith transforms. And then after the example of Abraham, James also points to the example of Rahab in verses 25 and 26. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so we read about Rahab in Joshua 2. So she was a resident of Jericho, and she had heard how God had delivered Israel from Egypt. She heard of all of God's great works, and she believed. Hearing that story of God's deliverance, she believed. She believed that God, that Yahweh was the one true God. And so when Joshua sends spies into Jericho to scout out the city before uh, going to war with it, she welcomes them in. She hides them. She protects them. That faith in Yahweh showed itself, revealed itself as true, right, and good, by loving God's people, by caring for the ones that God loved and was watching over. Her faith in the Lord was more than words. It showed itself. She was justified. It showed itself to be real, right, and true. She didn't just declare, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in Yahweh. No, she showed. It showed that her faith was real. Now, of all the people James could have chosen from the Old Testament, like, why did he choose Rahab? Why not like David or Moses? 
Like if, if I wanted to point you to another model of basketball, imagine if I didn't point you to Kobe or I didn't point you to LeBron or I didn't point you to Tim Duncan, but I pointed you to Brian Scalabrini. Yeah. You're like, who? <laughs> exactly. No one knows who Brian, well, maybe someone knows who Brian Scalabrini, but nobody knows who that is. And yet, here is James pointing to a lowly Gentile prostitute as a model of faith. Someone on the lowest rung of the ladder. Someone that the Jews would have looked down their nose at. He's pointing to her as a model of faith. Why? To show the scope of the power of faith. To just how far and just how transforming the power of faith really is. That God goes after the lowly and, and he saves the lowly prostitute. Just as he saves the great man of faith, Abraham, he saves the lowly prostitute, Rahab. This is the power of faith to transform. A Gentile prostitute becomes part of the people of God. And, and if you flip forward, you fast forward into the book of Matthew chapter 1 and you check out Jesus' genealogy, guess who you'll find? Rahab. A lowly Gentile prostitute grafted into the genealogy of the Messiah. That's the power of faith. That's the transforming power of faith. That's what faith does. It transforms people. True faith transforms, friends, because it has been God's purpose from eternity to save a people for himself. True faith transforms, friends, because it has been God's purpose to conform his people into the image of his son. True faith transforms because Jesus is not a powerless savior. True faith transforms because when Jesus died on the cross, he truly, fully, and completely paid our debts. He took the full wrath of God on himself so that you and I could be fully and completely forgiven. True faith transforms, friends, because Jesus didn't stay dead. He got out of the grave. True faith transforms because Jesus stands in victory over sin and evil and Satan and death. Friends, true, friend, true faith transforms because he's broken the power of sin in your life if you belong to him. True faith transforms, friends, because Jesus has poured out the spirit on his people. If you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit and he is renewing you, making you new, transforming you from the inside out to be like Jesus, empowering you to walk in good works. True faith transforms, friends, because it has been God's purpose to give you good works to do, to bring glory to his name in this world and that others may know Christ. Why does James go hard in the paint? Because he knows the nature of true faith. James is fired up about the true nature of faith because he knows his brother Jesus was not a powerless savior. And he does not want these Jewish Christians to mistake false faith for true faith. Because where there is false faith, damage and destruction, not love, not redemption, not renewal, not community, but division, hatred, powerlessness, hypocrisy, self-centered people pursuing their self-seeking agendas. True faith is more than words. True faith transforms. Not because of us, not because of our power, not because we're so great, but because of the power of God. When God sets a plan in motion, he accomplishes it. What God makes alive stays alive. That's why true faith transforms. And so as we close this out, let me, let me just make a few points of application by addressing several groups in the room. First, for those of you 
who wouldn't profess faith in Christ. Again, I'm glad you're here, and and I, I hope this has provoked some questions in you. I hope this has shown that, yes, Christianity is more than just intellectual assent. It's more than just saying, I believe in Christ. It's actually being transformed by Christ. And yes, the hypocrisy of people who claim to be Christ, like claim to be Christians but don't follow Christ, that's a problem. James goes at it harder than you ever will, really. <laughs> but here's the reality. That's not the biggest issue for you right now. Like the biggest issue here is what do you put your faith in? Like, like listen, what would have happened if I would have like stepped forward and like acted like there was, you know, I, I have faith there's a bridge right here and I put my foot down in here. I'd have went tumbling into the, into the seats and looked like an idiot. Why? Because I would have been foolish to put my faith in that. That's the question that confronts you this morning. What are you putting your faith in? Are you putting your faith in something that can truly save and transform, truly give you hope? Or is it like stepping into an invisible ridge that doesn't exist and falling flat on your face? Man, this morning Jesus holds himself out to you. Put your faith in me. Something real. Something that will bring forgiveness and transformation and renewal. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter the sin you've committed. It doesn't matter how dark your life has gotten. It doesn't matter how deep the pit you are in. Jesus' arm is not too short to save. His grace goes into the darkest of dark. He is that powerful. And when he saves, he saves to the uttermost. So the call for you this morning, put your faith in this Savior. Exercise true faith. For those of you in the room, um, and, and this is really, this is my burden, and this is a hard thing to say. But look, there are those of you in the room that this morning I hope you recognize that you're not a Christian. Like, like, like I want to get you unsaved so I can get you truly saved. Like there are those of you here that you have deceived yourself because you can say it, you can check the box theologically, but when it comes to your heart, there is actually no submission to Christ You have never truly bowed your knee to Jesus. You've never truly turned from your sin and your agenda and submitted to Jesus. Like, step away for a moment from the things that you say and things that you you will affirm with your mouth. Or you you look at a theology statement or you go, yeah, I believe the Bible. Look Look at your heart. Look at your life. Like, does it show loyalty to Christ? Does it show love for Christ? Or is it showing you chasing your own agenda? You sort of building your own identity? You following the ways of the world? Friends, I pray, and I, I, this is not shame. This, this is not try to, you know, do some manipulative guilt thing. I'm praying the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are cutting through into your heart and bringing conviction because you need to know you're playing a game. You're playing a game with your words And there's no true transformation, but this morning you can embrace true faith. This morning you can turn from your sin and actually put your faith in Christ. And look, if you've been playing a game and you're afraid to admit that, listen, right now, if you were to come up to me after the service and say, hey, I've been playing a game, I want to truly follow Christ, the first thing I will do is give you a hug. I'm not going to shame you. I'm going to go, what have you been lying to us for for all these years? I'm going to give you a hug and I'm going to say, okay, let's go to Jesus. Let me bring you to Jesus who can truly save you and truly transform you. Like my concern for you this morning is your soul, not not appearances. And so if that's you this morning, if you're under the conviction of God's word and spirit, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Truly put your faith in Christ. 
Let me also address those of you this morning that you hear a message like this and your, your conscience is weak and, and, and you're just like, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian. I know I'm not a Christian. I messed up this week. I know I'm not. So just inside this inner turmoil, you're doubting your salvation. Without removing the, the heaviness and the punch of this passage, let me just briefly say this. Like, listen, if you belong to Christ, here's your hope. If he has you, he has you forever. No one can take you out of his hand, not even yourself. You can't even jump out. He has you. You are secure. True faith transforms you forever. He will not let you go because you messed up. He has you. Put your hope in that. Rest in Jesus. As you feel that angst, run to Christ. Run to Jesus. Find your security and your hope in him. And listen, listen. While our objective standing before Christ has nothing to do with our behavior in the sense that we don't earn our salvation, we don't keep ourselves saved, that's all a work of Jesus, our standing is because of Christ. Our experience of that is something we can cultivate. Your subjective experience of assurance is something you can cultivate. How do you cultivate that? Through good works. Like what is the nature of true faith here? Good works, obedience, that's the key to growing in faith, walking in obedience. And so listen, I understand, sometimes your heart is just weak. You're just weak. But also understand, you can grow in confidence. You can grow in assurance. Your faithfulness will birth assurance and confidence in you. And yeah, you'll mess up. Yeah, you'll need to run to Jesus for grace. But let me encourage you in this. If you are struggling with assurance, follow James's lead here. And walk in obedience. By the power of the Spirit, walk in obedience and your faith will be strengthened. And finally, let me just say to, to all the Christians in the room, what James holds out for us, even though he's confronting some things here, what James holds out for us is the key to understanding what true faith looks like and what we need to be cultivating in this community. But true faith is thick. It, has, it shows itself in behavior. It shows itself in deep love and care and concern and service and obedience. It shows itself in dying to our own agendas and the things that we hold most tightly, giving those things to the Lord so we can live for him and glorify for him. It's turning from our own agendas and turning to the agenda of Christ. Like that true faith shows itself in those things. Are we cultivating that? Are we cultivating and exercising our true faith so that we may grow in these ways? Or are we settling for shallow faith? Are we settling for just mere sentiments? Oh, James calls us all as believers, exercise true faith. Let your faith be thick. Have the kind of faith of Abraham that will lay it all down. Have the kind of faith of Rahab who will love deeply, even at the cost of self, the things and the people God loves. Let us cultivate that kind of faith because true faith is more than words. True faith transforms. Amen? Let's pray.